to the Make It a Great Day movement, where we're making suicide a thing of the past. You are here and we are delighted. This show is in support of the Teen Suicide Prevention Society, so all funds raised through becoming a very inspiring person go to support the Teen Suicide Prevention Society. So this is a public service announcement. If you have not been to the VIP page, we'll put it in the chat for you. It is simply teaspoons, the initials, T-S-P-S, and then how, dot org. So it looks like tspshow.org. And that's how you find the VIP page. And so that'll be in the chat for you. Hang on. The ride gets more interesting from here. And there I am. I'm still getting used to where all of the techie things are. Hi, I'm Jackie Simmons. I'm the host of the show. And we are about to go into the land of wonderful things. We're going to talk about food. Yummy! We're going to talk about it with one of my favorite people. This is Dr. L. Ali Lankiri. We're going to be having a chat about the food mood connection. And I gave it a tagline. And so when he comes on, you all can rib him because he didn't know. So here we go. There you are. I like you. Yeah, there you are. You're laughing at me. <laughs> I'm laughing, Jackie. I'm just excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, Dr. L, you are so welcome. I am super, super happy that you're here. So what did you think about the tagline I gave you? Um, I, I like it, actually. I'm like, why haven't I been using that earlier? <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know me in the, our community, um, uh, we belong to a mastermind. That's how we met. And I'm known as the queen of taglines. You know, I could just complicate it down to the simple. This is really about eating your way back to sanity, whether it's about weight or whether it's about mood or whether it's about the dinner table disaster. You know, the, and for some of us, that's what dinner tables were. So, you know, I couldn't resist it. When you said that you were available, I'm like, oh yeah, this is so gonna be part of this conversation. There's gonna be a moment where we're gonna talk about how this all relates into this conversation about helping people become suicide proof. But first, tell us a story. Take us into the world according to Dr. L. Why do you do what you do? All right, well, thank you for asking me. Um, and thanks for everybody for being here and giving us your time uh, and joining us. Um, my name is Ali Lankarani. I go by Dr. L, the parent whisperer. I am a clinical neuroscientist and I ran a private practice for about 10 years uh, where I helped families that had children with autism spectrum disorders. Now the story goes a little further back because I actually grew up with ADHD myself long before there was such a diagnosis. And at the time people were just thinking that I'm just this bright but mischievous boy that would get the idea in class for the first five minutes and then I would spend the remaining 50 minutes disrupting the class. Um, and um, basically I grew up in Iran and at the time that I was growing up there was the Iran-Iraq war and academics was literally a life and death uh, situation there because if you didn't make it to the top one percent of the country's academic performers you would not be able to pass your national university entrance exams 
And that would mean that you actually were shipped off to the front lines to fight the Saddam Hussein forces. And you were basically clearing mines and fighting chemical weapons. And the outlook wasn't really good, actually. Um, and as you understand, ADHD is something that is a learning disability. So that did not bode well for me performing in my, uh, uh, in my academics. Now, long story short, of course, the, the pressure fell on my parents because as a child, I didn't have much of the, you know, the big picture and I didn't understand what all of it could mean down the road for me. So my parents were really frustrated in trying to get me to perform. And I always was in the top two, three people in my class. Uh, and luckily I won the lottery and I moved from the country. So I never got to the point where I actually had to take the university exam. Um, but that frustration that I would look at the kids around me and see that they would study with ease, with little distraction, that my parents were frustrated that they had to put so much effort into me studying. I internalized that, that reflected on my self-confidence. Uh, a lot of the people that have learning disabilities because they understand that there is something different about them. Uh, early on, they understand that their behavior oftentimes is not exactly on par with everybody else's acceptance and expectations. So they have this, they develop this feeling of depression or anxiety, depending on what, which end of the spectrum they fall on. Uh, and they live with that throughout their entire life, sometimes not even knowing that that is something they have. Uh, and as we know, mental health, this is one of those aspects that comes with it. And people don't realize that, you know, when you're talking about your brain, there's all these other factors that are um, playing as well. Uh, your brain controls the function of everything else. That means your digestion, your movement, your behavior, your impulsivity, your academics, all of these things are affected by it, uh, your social life. Uh, so so you got to take care of your brain if you want to be able to control your life because your brain controls the function of everything else in your body. So that's where I started with, and that's how I ended up in, um, in clinical neuroscience, basically. All right, so you went on this journey to understand your own brain? Um, little did I know that after I went through the postdoc, that it's like, ah, oh, I had ADHD, that was the problem. <laughs> but I had some interesting challenges. Um, I, you know, I, I have a, a photographic memory, but just like a photograph that is in two dimensions, I remember things in two dimensions. So when I was going through my anatomy lab, you were required to memorize things in three dimensions because you weren't allowed to touch things. Uh, when you were during your exams. And I had a great deal of difficulty. Uh, and eventually what I ended up doing is me I memorized the human body, just like an MRI kind of does picture by picture of every single layer of the human body. Uh, so that when I would look at a body, I would reference it to which MRI slice it is. And then based on that, I knew what I was looking at, which is not the typical way of learning anatomy. No, but it sounds like a great textbook. I wish I'd had that when I did my anatomy and physiology. Yeah. I mean, whoa, that would be a great reference tool. All right, so I hope you kept that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So cool. All right, so you were on this journey into the medical field, and you realized that, oh, wait, this applies to my brain. All right, that's a huge thing. We love this correlation that we're finding in that you know, we do what we need to do for ourselves. And even if we think we're doing it for the world. So 
now that you knew the label, you knew the name of the thing, what, what next? I mean, because trust me, this is near and dear to my heart because you've met my guy. My guy, Mark, oh yeah, for those of you who don't know him, my guy, Mark, is the poster child for ADHD. And again, before there was a diagnosis, before there was a name for it, he was the kid in elementary school who got to run the principal's errands. They had him running up and down the halls, delivering the notes to the different teachers because there was no way they were going to get him to sit still. And so he didn't know then that that made him something a little different, like you said. And I'm going to relate this to our whole theme. One of the six indicators that I'm going to be talking about later on today that you might be at risk or someone in your family might be at risk is if there's something about you or someone in your family that's a little different, whether it's a visible disability or an invisible challenge like ADHD or anxiety that we were talking about earlier. So if there's something that makes you a little different, which is most of us, it actually puts us at risk. But what did you find after that that helped you get to where you are now? Because trust me, you are one of the most calm, focused people I know. <laughs> well, it took a lot of meditation, I guess. That's what it came down to. But um, what happened is, actually, I wanted to ask the audience, how many of you know people with either learning disabilities or anxiety, depression, or some form of mental health challenge, basically? If, if, if you would go ahead and either raise your hand or just let me know, uh, because when I was going through uh, school, the rate of like these learning disabilities was like one in 10,000. Mm -hmm. And as we grew, and I don't know what's going on with my camera. There we go. As we grew, my, my camera is having ADHD. It can't focus. <laughs> um, <Or> focus. <laughs> so as we were going through this, um, by the time I finished my postdoctorate, and currently that number is one in 52. And I see some of the names. Yeah. Wait a minute. Sorry, we're going to say those numbers again. It was one in how many? It was one in 10,000 when I was going through school. Okay. Uh, so we're, yeah. Now it's one in 52. One in 52. Right. Uh, I'm going to ask the elephant in the room. Is that because now we have a broader... Um, way of analyzing and actually diagnosing or is it because it's happening more often? No, actually that study took into consideration the fact that now we have diagnoses for it, now that we have, like it actually took into consideration all of that. Uh, that initially at some point it was overdiagnosed and at some point um, now it, everybody kind of falls into that category. And when we're, the reality is that when, when they came up with the diagnosis, they also attached things like genetics and all these other factors and attributed it to the condition. But the reality is that you, if, if this rapid rate of 10,000 to 52 is happening so much, that almost means like the only people who are, who are having kids are people with learning disabilities. So I'm, I mean, know that that's not the case basically. Um, so a big part of this has to do with lifestyle. And in fact, once I did the postdoctorate and I was helping these children with, uh, it, with the spectrum disorders, what we found out is that a lot of it had to be developmental. And it's basically how this process came about. And usually I wouldn't really start the therapies with, this, with these kids until we had addressed how to support the brain. 
You see, your brain, let's, let's look at it this way. We have a pyramid. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom of this pyramid, we have the food and your nutrition as the foundation of how to support your brain. Then the next level is rest and oxygenation. And then on top of that pyramid is stimulation. And I'll go into the specific parts of every single one of these things. Yeah, the yeah. human brain is something that is not evolved and developed completely when we are born. So through the process of birth and in those early two years, what happens is the brain develops and forms into a point where it becomes a viable entity to basically be able to keep you alive. Um, so in that process, you need to have these fundamental things uh, in there. You need to have the nutrition, you need to have rest and oxygenation. And then once your brain is supported through nutrition, rest and oxygenation, then through stimulation, it connects different parts of it together, becomes synchronized, becomes focused. And then if you ask it to perform a task, it can do that for you. Now, what I didn't like in private practice was that by the time the kids were coming to me, they had already gone through the first decade, that important first decade of their life, having suffered, having internalized their problem, and the families were basically being pulled apart relationship-wise, finance-wise, just frustration-wise, uh, because they're trying to throw all these different therapies uh, at the kid and hoping that something would stick, basically. And I realized I wanted to move to the prevention side of things so that they wouldn't go ahead and experience what I grew up with and what I had to experience. And this that's where I ended up with where I am today, basically. Cool. All right. So you're all firmly in, let's get ahead of the curve. And this is one of the other things that is this wonderful parallel, because this is, you know, where I'm working. My whole goal is to get ahead of the curve exactly. on, the, on my favorite topic. I never thought I would call suicide my favorite topic. Whoa, that's weird. Okay, so yeah, my favorite topic is the fact that we can make it a thing of the past. What your favorite topic is, is really the food mood connection. It's the, the, the brain requires a certain amount of things before it can perform. Right, exactly. And that's really key because most of us just sort of expect our brain to do whatever we ask it to. Yeah, you know, like playing the card game earlier, you know? Right. I kind of expect that the neurons are gonna fire. I kind of take all of this for granted. Right. When you shifted to prove to into solidly into prevention, what was the biggest myth, I guess? What was the biggest thing that was in the way of people actually embracing the idea that all of these things could be prevented? Well, the first part is that um, people have to realize that if you want that foundation, that nutrition part, because I mean, you have to ultimately work with your body. Mm -hmm. Your body is designed to perform the task that you ask of it. But if you don't support it, sooner or later, it's going to break down. And of course, food and healthy eating, food is the foundational tool mm -hmm. for building your body and achieving what you want. And healthy eating is the foundational skill that you need to have in order to be able to kind of put all of it together and make it happen. And one of the big, and I had personal challenges. I mean, I've had biochemistry and nutrition and all these things, and I still had personal health challenges starting at age 19 with cholesterol and all these things. So that's where I really started with the nutrition. But ultimately, I realized what a critical role it has on my behavior, my focus, and my performance and how I show up in life. So 
a lot of times I see people trying to take stimulants and different things to kind of biohack their way into asking their body to do more. And ultimately what that comes down to is your body is going to end up, that's not sustainable. At some point, your body is going to fall apart or show that you neglected something in order to get that extra push. Yeah, we get so, the problem. What gets in the way of people actually doing something about it? So here's the thing, the, the myths that I have, uh, or I should say that, that what people think about is that usually they, when you ask them, it's like, how do you do healthy eating? And they're like, oh, I eat, I eat pretty healthy. And then when you start talking to them, you realize that there are three things that most people really haven't thought about. One is that we either follow when we eat based on culture based on how we were raised oh, we don't put much thought into when our body needs to eat so we have people that fall on one end of the spectrum where they're like oh no research says you have to have four to six meals a day and the meals got to be small in portion and so on and so forth and then you get other people that are like well we've always been a breakfast lunch and dinner type of a thing then there are people that say you know breakfast is the most important meal of the day never skip breakfast and then you got those people that are like, no, we fast and they end up eating like nothing for days on end. And they're like, I'm on a water fast or, you know, so, so there's this gamut of things. And the reality is that uh, your body is so capable of coping with these different um, ways of eating that it actually switches mechanisms as how to produce energy. So, so most people, the first one is, they don't pay attention to the fact that there's a proper way to eat as far as when to eat. The second one is most people don't pay attention to how to eat. So and we as a, as a society, as a civilization are great at it. Our brains kind of are too smart for our own goods. We mix things that were never intended to be mixed together. We end up eating foods that, you know, like exist year round, but in nature they never do. Um, so, so then there's that part of how okay, so when you talk, I'm just going to say, when you're talking about when to eat, you're not just talking about what time of day. You're also talking about what season of the year to eat things. Exactly. So, okay. so there is seasonality. There is whether you eat three meals a day, four meals a day, or no meals a day. Um, you know, how do you decide which one is the right one for you or based on your lifestyle? And then the last one is what to eat. Now, this is the part that people always have an opinion on or they think that, um, you know, they, they do pretty good. And again, you have people in both camps. You know, you got people that are pure vegan and they never touch animal products. You got people who are carnivores and keto and they only eat fats, you know, or, or animal products. So again, and they both swear by it. They're like, it really works for me. Um, so, so these are the different things. And it's like, so which one is the right one for you? And the beauty of it is that these three things that I talked about, these three challenges, if you understand how your body works, then you can use whether it's a vegan diet or a carnivore diet, whether it's a fasting diet or four to six meals a day, you know how to put it all together and you know how to mix your foods together so that you get healthy results as opposed to feeling lethargic and out of energy after eating where you need a nap or a coffee or a cookie or something to pep you up. So all of those things are telling you that you have provided for your body something that it wasn't designed to handle at the time. 
or that you're asking your body to do something and you haven't supported it properly. So, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to highlight this because the, I don't have my whiteboard set up or I'd be writing a list for people. Yeah. This idea that you can't do it wrong. Your body's going to adapt. Your body's going to adapt to a lot of the things we ask it to do, whether you are on one end of the spectrum or the other, or like me, I'm an omnivore. Yeah. So I eat it all. Um, and then your body's going to adapt to that. That's not the biggest elephant in the room. You know, it sounds like it's less about the what eating structure and more about the really the when and the how right. of, of this. So right. every time you put something into your mouth, I, I, I have a five-year-old and a nine-year-old and I always tell them, try to control what goes into your mouth or what comes out of your mouth. Because if you can control that, then you are ahead of most people in life when it comes to having control over your life. That is, I mean, that is like the most essential and the basic thing that you have mo the most control over, right? Okay. okay, parenting 101. Helping your child understand that they are the one, of, once, they're, once they're, you're no longer feeding them, they are ultimately in control of this. This is, this is the first locus of control of your life is that you get to control what goes in your mouth and you get control what comes out of your mouth. And then there's the moment that that wasn't true for me. And it left me with a, um, an emotional eating roller coaster relationship with food that started when I was four. And it was about this thing of control. So I'm really glad that you're bringing it up. If we gave our children this concept of that was theirs to control what they put into their mouth and that their body would give them feedback, that they could actually learn to be aware of the impact, the information, the feedback from their bodies. My God, we would change the world. So, okay, now I get the importance of this. Yeah, we just made, I just, that's, we got really personal there for a second. I'll be talking about that story, as a matter of fact, uh, tomorrow night, because um, that plays into that part of the show. But for this particular episode, let's stick with this, because you that was a lot. Controlling what comes out of their mouth, we've been addressing, you know, with various ways, you know, with the, the, becoming genuine card games. But the journey right now of controlling what goes in your mouth. I know a lot of adults who don't feel like they have a lot of control over that. Right. And there is so much information out there. It's almost information overload. So on one end, you have people who just toss all the information out and they're like, I'm on a seafood diet. I see food, I eat it. And then you got other people that are so... Um, you know, micro when it comes to managing everything that they eat, that in the process, they might end up leaving entire big important things out because they're just focused on one area. And as I mentioned to you, I had this challenge for 25 years of my life. I'm a guy who actually aces biochemistry. I did really well with nutrition. I recommended nutrition to my patients. And yet I had this personal challenge, which was always a problem for me. I couldn't figure out if I know so much and if I've been taught everything there is to know about it, why is it that I can't control my own health? And eventually 
the ahas that I had, the three ahas that I had, were that number one, we are omnivores. Part of the human species success is that we can go anywhere on the planet, be it the Arctic regions, be it the tropics, and we can find food that allows us to be sustained and survive. So we, we are capable of eating everything. So this idea of leaving one thing entirely out and never having it again, I don't subscribe to that. I believe that you're designed to be able to eat everything. It's just that you have to make sure that you don't escape your ancestral and your cultural programming. So that also becomes the second aha, that you know, if, if you're in an environment where there are certain foods that are not available to you, you just simply wouldn't have those. But nowadays, you know, if, if you were uh, in the Nordic regions, there was no plants there. It was snow most of the time. At the same time, in the tropics, the competition for higher end foods was fierce, but there's plenty of nutritious fruits and vegetables. So why risk life and limb over hunting when you can just go ahead and get fruits, right? So ah, low hanging fruit. We knew there was a reason for this. This is the exactly. easy way to eat before there was such a thing as a grocery store. Exactly. Uh, and then some of the modern stuff that we have been doing from processing to genetic modification of the foods, our bodies are not designed for it. Like the North American grain, for instance, we don't necessarily have the enzymes to process all of that. So anytime you have a grain, chances are it is from North America, it is incredibly inflammatory to your body. So there's one example of it, basically. Now that doesn't mean grains are bad, but you need to know exactly which grains and when to have them. So that comes back to this, what I was telling you. you. If you were in the Nordic regions, you didn't have access to bananas year round. And if you had access to bananas, chances are you didn't have very fatty cuts of uh, protein, like meats uh, around, because th there was no reason for insulation and that level of oh, uh, fatty. Okay. So wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. You just said something that's really important to me since I carry around a fair amount of insulation. That I live in Florida. So a diet that would encourage my body to produce insulation might not be the smartest diet living in Florida. Right. So, Never so on, on one end of it, you have the locale, the geographic part mm -hmm. of it. Then there's a seasonal part. And then there's also the types of food that you eat. Every time you put food into your mouth, your body has to start this machinery, this digestive machinery of hormones and uh, gastrointestinal enzymes and muscles that run along the whole uh, tube and hold it and sphincters. And there's an entire nervous system called your enteric nervous system in your gut that's separate from your brain. And it actually accounts for 70% of the neurotransmitters in your body. So when we talked about food mood connection, yeah. a lot of your moods comes from your enteric nervous system. And if it's off, guess what? Your brain also is using the same neurotransmitters. It's going to be off. And this is what was so critical in private practice. But I could not start a child on their therapies until their brain was supported. So pretty much the first month, I was basically trying to make sure that the rest was in place, that they're breathing properly, and most importantly, that they're consuming the right types of foods to build brain cells, to connect the brain cells, and to be able to uh, perform. Because if you don't have those building blocks and you were to ask the 
child to do something difficult in therapy that you know that's what the therapy was for the brain would collapse it would crash literally i mean seizures epilepsy some of these are perfect examples of certain parts of the brain actually collapsing and not being able to be up for the task so so these are all things that all tie back down to making sure that your brain is supported before you ask it to do something and then the third one is that your diet has to fit your life not the other way around too many people <laughs> yeah. they figure out a diet and then they try to cram their life into it and then of course as you travel as you have social settings as things change um, their diet falls apart so yeah. you have to figure out how to work with your body and what your body needs to perform based on your lifestyle so that's something that's very very significant that we work on a lot uh, with our nutrition program actually and all of it of course is to support the brain basically so when I talk to nutritionists, there, there's very different uh, ways of looking at the situation. But for me, brain is kind of like math. Two plus two always equals four. So whatever can support the brain, I'm willing to go that route and approach it from that angle. All right. Well, I'm going to just dive in where angels fear to tread. Because when we talk about changing our eating habits, when we talk about shifting um, and actually maybe even actually controlling what we put into our mouths. We all have our different challenges and your ability to make it clear that our diet has to support our lifestyle, not the other way around. Um, I'm just gonna ask everybody, if you've got a question about this or something you wanna share, because my personal big challenge is that my lifestyle um, prior to right now where I'm doing everything virtually, my lifestyle was to travel. I was on the road, multi-state, multi-country, um, often, like twice a month um, was a pretty good average. And so that changed everything. I mean, I was not where I had a kitchen most of the time. I wasn't in places where I knew where to go, what to do, um, as far as where to find things that might fall into a more um, controlled environment like I had when I was at home. So if people put any challenges that they've experienced into the chat, because it's not just our lifestyle. You hit it on earlier. You said something about culture. And having married into a family that was a meat and potatoes family, they, they had no concept of green vegetables, basically. And I was like, wow, that's weird. Um, but I, it was a cultural thing. It was just this was their norm. And learning how to navigate all of this is a big deal because we have something connected to food that on the surface doesn't seem to make sense, but it, there's a huge emotional component to a lot of the, if you call it decisions, there's a huge emotional component to, to what I eat. Um, and it has been that way most of my life. And so shift and and there's another one shifting from physical active job to a uh, more desk job you know not being as active all right so we got a lot of components here help us put this together what somebody what's the building blocks of shifting this whole conversation so that our moods are not well let's face it food controls the world in a lot of different ways but it doesn't have to also have control over our moods so give us the building blocks take us on the journey 
So when it comes to foods, there's let's let's talk about the different things that it impacts basically. So because I started with the macro because I'm a big picture person. I talked about the brain. But the reality is when you eat certain types of food, it actually, if you think about your DNA being coiled really tightly or being opened up ready for it to be transcribed and for the genetic code to be pulled out of it so that you can create different proteins and different materials that your cell needs. Depending on what type of food you eat, you can actually coil that gene in or uncoil it. So at a molecular level, you can actually train your cells to become good at manifesting certain genes. Now, if that happens to be a good gene, that's great. And if it happens to be a bad gene, that's bad. And the reverse of that is also true as well. If a gene that is supposed to be manifested because it's a good gene is coiled really tightly, then that gene never gets to show up and say fight cancer or whatever it happens to be. Okay, thank you for explaining because I wasn't sure what the impact was. Coiled tightly means that it's not able to function. Can it get too loose or is loose better? Uh, well, it depends. If it's a bad gene, you much rather have it be coiled ah, uh, there we so go. that okay. there's no access to that gene. <laughs> and if it's a good gene, you want it to be uncoiled. So typically the good foods that we eat tend to, sh uh, tend to open up the good parts of the DNA and the bad ones tend to open up the bad parts of the DNA. All right. So for purposes of this conversation where we come away from Shakespeare who said nothing is good or bad, but thinking make it so, in this case, good would mean foods that support optimal performance of both brain and body. Would yes. that be a good definition? Yes. Um, our company is called Role Model Maker, and I'm passionate about optimizing human potential. And of course, I see that to be no, uh, there's no better place, in my opinion, to start than with a child that has their entire life ahead of them. And we want to make sure that we lead by example in creating future role models. So these are all ways to go ahead on a day-to-day -day basis to build habits and to create a lifestyle where the children don't have to be preached to, don't have to be told what to do. They just see it, they internalize it, and that becomes part of their life. It's much easier to have a child copy you than for you to have to preach to them. And they've never seen it in action, basically. Just like if you uh, if a doctor that's smoking tells you, well, you should quit smoking. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't take that as seriously. And that used so. to happen a lot. So we're talking about life skills that are caught, not taught, to quote yeah. Michelle. Um, this is one of those life skills that's caught, not taught. Our children don't do what we say, they do what we do, especially when it comes to food. Right. So what types of food, because you've said, Certain types of food, certain types of food. Now I'm going to pin you down. What types of food should I be eating? No, I should on myself. Everybody who knows me is just now dying laughing. Okay. Um, what, 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 are the, what, are the, yeah, what are the right things? What so the remember things? the third principle that your diet should fit your life. Uh, so if somebody asks me what types of food, then my first question is, well, what's your immediate goal? Because if your immediate goal is to just go ahead and get lots of energy and store energy or feel vibrant, then that's one type of food. If your goal is to increase your focus, then it's not so much what types of food you want to eat, it's when you're supposed to eat. So let's go back to the question of what types of food. Um, depending on what uh, cycle your body is in, because 
So here, here are the three principles that I'm going to share with you right All now. Right. You ready? You yeah. guys got to write this down. Get Lay your pen on. and paper out. I got my notepad. There you go. The first principle is this. You want to make sure that you separate your fats from your carbohydrates. Now, I know these are big words, but for now, we'll just keep it simple. That fats and carbohydrates together confuse your body. Your body doesn't know which one to process or how to process them together. So a lot of times in your body, whatever process they use for, uh, for fats. Whoa, 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 whoa. You mean the, the balanced diet throws your body out of balance? The balance what we considered a balanced diet only works in certain types of situations. Okay. All right. So there we go. We myth busted this whole thing about you're supposed to mix your meats. You have to have a meat and a starch and a this and a that all on yeah. one plate. Yeah. So, so right then and there, you want to separate the fats from the carbohydrate. The second principle is that you want to give your body time to actually burn off the fuel that you give it. And if you don't, your body, every time you eat something, the natural thing is it can't burn it off right then and there. So what it does, it, it stores it. That's the logical thing to do. You eat something, your body stores it. So when you need it, you can use it. Okay. So it takes time for that machinery to fire up, to put everything into storage, and then eventually shut down. And then the other machinery that causes you to go ahead and burn off the fuel is completely different. And they can't work together. This is the reason why your mom said, do not jump into the pool right after eating, because your body is going to get a cramp either in your belly or in your muscles, because it cannot send the blood to do work in both places at the same time. Oh, isn't that interesting? Okay. All right. Now that that's new information for my brain. Um, but I do remember that there used to be the thing about rest after a meal without right. it being explained, but right. oh my God, how many of us would like to go back to being a napper? You know, so after <laughs> lunch, take a nap. Don't, don't make me work hard. Let me rest, let my body digest. I'm thinking this could change my lifestyle a little bit. Okay. <laughs> you know? yeah, of cool. Of course, the third principle is that now the last part is you wanna make sure you eat the types of food that reduce inflammation Okay. Did I say that the right way? Reduce the, the foods. Types of food that reduce inflammation. Yes. Yeah, so no, what reduce I the foods that increase inflammation. Oh, reduce the foods that increase it. Okay, so both of those would be good. Are so there foods that reduce inflammation? There are, there are foods that are anti-inflammatory. You want to have a lot of those. Okay. And there are foods that cause inflammation. You want to minimize those. That makes sense. I think that's the easier way of saying it. Here's the thing. The longer we live, the more we are subject to wear and tear. And inflammation at some points are necessary, like when you get an infection or when you have a broken bone. Natural but, part of the healing process. Yeah. The rest of the time though, inflammation actually wears out whatever area is affected faster. So if it happens to be in your joints, you get osteoarthritis. If it happens to be in your liver, you can have liver disease. If it happens in your thyroid, you can have autoimmune disorders affecting the thyroid. So you want to, if it happens in your arteries, you can have cardiovascular disease. Got it. In your brain, uh, so uh, dementia, mental health issues. Those, so a lot of the foods that are inflammatory can cause things like uh, impaired learning, impaired memory, 
uh, impaired cognition and focus, which is where my field and my specialty was. And now they're talking about dementia and autism and things like that. Not autism, um, Alzheimer's. Yeah. <laughs> being things that are affected through inflammation and foods that cause inflammation. So it is very important to understand that when it comes to foods, you want to reduce inflammations because it builds up and wears your body out. And now we get to a point where we're in our 50s and 60s and we see that our pancreas is giving out. We see that we have cardiovascular disease and so on and so forth and a whole host of other things. None of those have to be Everybody's asking the same question in the chat, which is give us the list we could take to the grocery store. Right. Yeah. So, part of our gift today. Aha! Is... All right, I got it for you. Don't worry, I got you covered there. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna make it easy. I knew he would. So you go right ahead, talk about it. That list that I have about how to remove brain fog—it's more than just about brain fog. It actually talks about the three principles I just talked about. It gives you a sample of foods that are anti-inflammatory, and foods to avoid that would create inflammation, basically. So whether it's carbohydrates, whether it's fats or proteins, there's always good ones and there's bad ones. The good ones tend to reduce inflammation. The bad ones tend to increase inflammation. That does, so there is no such thing as a, all, all of it being bad carbs or all of it being bad fats, as we have been led to believe over the past you know, 50 years that at one point, when I was 19, they told me, you know, you have high cholesterol, so you got to cut out the fats and so to reduce your cholesterol. In that process, what happened to me was I basically got uh, into a situation unknowingly where I became, uh, I ended up having sugar metabolism problems that eventually got to a point where I, I was very susceptible to cardiovascular disease, uh, possibly not seeing my child's high school graduation because it was out of control and everything that I did based on the knowledge they had given me would end up causing those things. Um, so, so it is important for you to understand that just because you eat fats doesn't mean you end up with fat in your body. And just because you eat carbs, you end up with carbs in your body. Your body is very, very complex. That's why I said we are omnivores. We can convert these things. But the reality of it is that there are certain types of carbs that are good for you. There are certain types of carbs that are bad for you. There are certain types of fats that are good for you. There are certain types of fats that are bad for you. Okay, and so I'm gonna bring this down to something that has puzzled me. So you can tell me where you land on this because I've got a hold of a book a long time ago called Eat Right for Your Blood Type. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it talked about the geography, it talked about eating things in season. And then it talked about if your blood is this type, you're an A positive or a B positive or negative or whatever, that you would have an easier time with certain foods. What do you think? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Is there any correlation with that that um, we could apply here? Whenever it comes to specific stuff, I never say no to it because I've seen too many crazy things that worked and too many things that were mainstream that didn't work. So when it comes to the blood type, there are people that swear by it. And I'm like, if it works for you, that's good. I personally don't have enough of how it ties into your neurology, other than the fact that different blood types also in some ways are related to how your immune system is set up. Oh. So if you think about inflammation as 
something that is a byproduct of your immune system, mm-hmm. then you could possibly see that there are certain foods that could trigger your immune system more and cause more inflammation. Uh, but again, that is just hearsay. That's not necessarily science that I have researched backing it up. Yeah, so I say, if it works for you, go ahead and do it more power to you. You know, you are the anti-inflammatory doctor. Here, here's why I say that, because your way of interacting with the world is non-confrontive. You know, I mean, it's just the... I'm, I, I'm starting to think that there's an inflammatory reactive connection that if I have more inflammation in my body, the more likely I am to be emotionally reactive. Am I starting to put this together? Well, let me just put it this way for you. Every disease that we have in the modern world, be it diabetes, be it autoimmune disease, be it these mental health disorders we're talking about, be it cardiovascular disease, be it um, um, stroke and things related to that, um, be it joint diseases. Mm-hmm. Every single one of those has an inflammatory component to it. So imagine, remember I told you food and healthy eating is a foundational tool and skill that you need to control your body. This is where it comes in. Imagine having food that will make sure you will never end up with cancer. You will never end up with it minimizing your chance of having these things all at the same time. There's no guarantees in life, but the reality is this is the single most preventable thing that we know about every single one of these diseases. Okay, so here we go. The the single most preventive, yes. All right, so there we go. It's a bit.ly link. It's TSPS-1. So teaspoons, T-S-P-S. And for those of you who like things that are in patterns, the Suicide Prevention Show, the Suicide Prevention Society, Teen Suicide Prevention Society, they all have the same acronym of teaspoons. And Dr. Ali, I feel like that what you were able to share with us in this period of time was like a teaspoon in a vast ocean of information that some of us have been like drowning in for a really long time. So I have lots of specific questions. We'll have to have an offline conversation. So the uh, chat, please grab this guide, the three key steps to removing brain fog. And yeah, Paula, you brought up the, the DNA markers and not activated. Okay. so. This is another way of expressing what I think you were saying about the genes. She, the DNA marker is brought up to the surface, but not activated until an inflammatory trigger happens. This is the case for inflammation management. Right. And I'm going to give you one final thing on that. Mm-hmm. Foods that you eat can coil things to the point where when you pass on your genes to the next generation, it can stay cold in for up to two generations after. Whoa, 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 whoa. Say that again. I know I'm just just throwing too much information out there, but... Well, what you said is really vitally important when we're talking about this whole conversation about culture and family. If I'm eating something and it coils up one of the genes that I want to have expressed, I could be passing down a coiled gene for two generations. Right. 
or an uncoil gene where you're more susceptible. There's actually quite a bit of studies that show, uh, like for instance, they did it in the mice where they gave them fatty foods or the foods that would um, plump them up. And then their children ended up being more plump just because of that, even though they had regular food. Now, if they had regular food, when they passed on their genes, their children would look back to normal. But a lot of times, if they continued that, that became more and more of a permanent feature down the generations for them. Yeah, the phrase used to be the sins of the father are passed down to the son, which means, ladies, we were immune from this whole conversation. Um, but that's not what we're seeing. And so this is a very, very important step in the conversation that, yes, if you want to impact your children, it's going to start with taking care of you. Everything's going to come back to that over the course of the show. So that's the short version. The long version is get some more information, experiment with this, have fun with it. This is, I'm going to put it this way, because I have seen you working with people at restaurants and stuff as we've all been traveling together. And it's like, play with your food, people. You don't have to take it so seriously. Exactly. It's <laughs> supposed to be fun. It's supposed to give you energy. It's supposed to uh, make you feel fulfilled. If your food is not doing that, then, then you're not approaching it the right way. All right. Absolutely. Oh, there we go. Uh, I also would like to make an invitation. Anybody who's interested in more information, they have a free Facebook group called Food and Fitness 101 that you're more than welcome to join where we share tips from time to time as well. Awesome. Food and Fitness 101. And it's a free Facebook group. So you guys can find him on Facebook. You can follow the man like I do. Um, and you can also get his great gift. It's an unfair advantage to optimize productivity. All of us could use a little more of that today. All right, Dr. Arley, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure. I always love being on the show, being able to serve in any way possible. So I appreciate the audience for listening and being engaged. And I love your inquisitive questions, Jackie. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. Everyone, the ride gets more interesting from here. Thank you for being here as we have talked about how to eat your way back to sanity with Dr. L. We'll see you soon. Stay around. Thanks. Bye.